listening to The Renegade Economist, investigating monopoly profits, great corruption, and the policy solutions demanded. Geeky but essential, the tools to the fairest and most efficient economic system await. With your host, Carl Fitzgerald. Welcome listeners. The taxation of Facebook of big tech has really stepped up in the headlines of recent. Couldn't believe it when I went to copy a link from the Donut Economics website and that was blocked as news when I tried to throw it somewhere on Facebook. So uh, yeah, the crackdown's been crazy and uh, I've been sick this week. My wife's been wiped out and so I thought I'd dive back to this interview with Silicon Valley coder Max Carlson, which uh, amazingly took place about six years ago and in it you'll find a number of techniques to tax Silicon Valley that don't revolve around link taxes. It appears that's pretty much a cover story to uh, pay Murdoch for the work, pay other big media, which, you know, I kind of support, but I feel like uh, there's a lot more to explore than uh, this rapid fire move, uh, both the federal government here and uh, Facebook's retaliation have resulted in. So, hey, don't forget to support 3CR. It's our annual subscriber drive and i'd love to see a few subscriptions a few donations supporting this show supporting 3cr and the independent media that's provided by so many broadcasters each and every week hello 3cr and rolling here on the renegade economists with max carlson a open source software genie who's flown into melbourne from good old california max welcome to the show yeah thanks for having me carl Good. So uh, I've been grappling with quite a few technology-related issues, and here we're talking the internet and the incredible energy sinkhole that are these huge data server farms and so forth. Uh, I saw one report years ago that a single search on Google is equivalent to a driving your car 100 meters. Has that sort of analysis developed any further as more and more concern is raised over how much energy is used by the internet? Um, Yeah. I mean, I don't know if it's a concern per se that individual people have, but certainly companies like Google, that's directly impacting their bottom line. So, you know, all of these big companies try really hard to cut their costs by making more efficient hardware and finding out, you know, figuring out, you know, how to put it places where it's naturally cool because that's one of the biggest costs is cooling the equipment, using more efficient equipment. So you're talking about putting some of these server farms up in the mountains. That, that yeah, or that's in the, surprising. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the good thing about it uh, using a lot of energy is it costs them a lot of money. So, you know, it, it does lead directly to, uh, investment in you know green technology and figuring out how to make more efficient hardware and make the software more efficient and things like that. But that said, I'd be surprised if uh, you know if it's uh, gigantically more efficient than uh, it was in the past, because now uh, instead of the efficiency tends to get used up by adding additional functionality, if that makes sense, rather than actually saving. So. It's yeah. the Jevons paradox, isn't it? Is that what they call it? Where any sort of energy efficiency is drowned out by new technological developments that tend to use more and more energy. Yeah, I mean, that does seem to happen, right? I mean, if you look at your example earlier of Google, you know, the 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 amount of stuff that's happening when you do a Google, Google search, I mean, it's much more complicated than it was. 
I mean, I remember hearing that statistic maybe seven or eight years ago. And there's a lot more happening when you do that search now than there was back then. So I suspect that's the case. Our mutual friend, Shana Nolan, talks about some of the exciting technologies that are happening behind the scenes in Silicon Valley. Where do you see any sort of sanity in the world of technology coming to our rescue in terms of uh, this incredible carbon conundrum we have facing future generations? I think the best hope is uh, probably harnessing people's desire to save money and cut costs. So I think there's a lot of opportunity in efficiency and energy efficiency. So the thing that actually finally pulled me out of working on Open Lazo after 12 years was an opportunity to work on the Nest Learning thermostat. And it's this um, intelligent thermostat, which manages the heating and cooling of the home. So it's targeted at homes because these guys realize that uh, heating and cooling a house is about 30% of the total energy use in a home. And something like 70%, at least 70% of, of all the electronic digital thermostats that people had installed in their homes were not programmed. They were just running the default settings. And programming those thermostats was kind of like setting the clock on a microwave oven. Like it was a really unpleasant experience. No one wanted to deal with it. So the idea was, well, let's make a really smart thermostat that figures out how to program itself. And believe it or not, I was kind of skeptical, but even in my own home, it managed to cut 20% right off the heating bill in San Francisco. And, uh, you know, that's something that really works. And it's something that people can go out and buy, you know, and indulge their kind of capitalistic, you know, uh, you know, do some retail therapy and feel good about themselves because not only are they saving money, they're cutting their carbon footprint. And so, I mean, I think there's a lot of opportunity in efficiency. I don't think people are actually going to stop using technology or, you know, stop buying the newest, latest iPhone that probably uses more energy because it's got more features. I just don't really see that the march of technology slowing down. So I think the best bet is looking at efficiency and also looking at how can you align with people's self-interest, like specifically figuring out how to help them cut costs. That's where the, the market system comes through. That pricing information is just so powerful. There are millions and millions of decisions made every second. And uh, I often say, look, I've never seen a chairman that can uh, orchestrate more than about a dozen decisions uh, in 90 minutes, let alone a million decisions uh, per microsecond. Uh, so, yeah, th that's exciting uh, that that there are these little angles we can cut away at to return to a, a, a more energy efficient uh, lifestyle. But uh, yeah, this Jeevan's paradox where uh, it, technology keeps upgrading and using more and more energy, do you get a feeling that the regulators might come in and start uh, really whacking technology and any sort of manufacturing on the head when uh, they're using high intensive capacitors and all these other sort of bits and pieces involved in refrigerators onwards? Um, probably not because the corporations, the technology corporations, I mean, you know, Google in particular is at the center of U.S. policy now. So to think that, you know, the, the um, at least in the U.S., that anybody um, in politics is going to go against that tide of, you know, money, particularly post uh, Citizens United, is kind of, I think, folly. I mean, I think it's just going to continue. So that's why, you know, I think the the best bet is looking at efficiency. I mean, another way that really works with Nest in particular is, 
So many people tried to make smart learning thermostats in the past, and they would partner with utility companies. And really, utility companies don't care about saving you energy because the more energy you burn, I'm talking about private utilities here, which are the majority, the more, the more fuel that you burn, the more money they make. The only time they actually care about saving energy is when they're uh, when they have when at peak power when they have to turn on an additional generator, which actually costs them more money. So there are all of these attempts with smart meters and whatnot to allow the utility company to reach into your home and turn the power off or turn your heating and cooling off at peak time. And it was always done really badly. So one of the things that's interesting about Nest is it's a consumer focused company. It's absolutely not built around the idea of dealing with utility companies. It's about saving the individual person money. And through that, there actually, uh, there's actually uh, been a lot of success in terms of having the leverage, right, uh, in terms of people having these things installed, to go to the utility companies and say, we can provide, a, you know, we can provide you, you know, the option to save, you know, not have to turn on that extra generator during peak time, but we're going to be in control of the user experience and we're going to make it better, you know, and, and focused on the end user, that, that consumer. And I think, you know, that that's one of the most exciting things about this kind of technology. I mean, if you look at what happened with the iPhone, all the phones before that were completely controlled by the phone carriers and they sucked. And one of the things that makes the iPhone great and what that started is the fact that it's centered on the user experience and improving the individual user's life, not improving the phone company's life. And so I think, you know, I think that's, you know, in some ways uh, a best bet because I don't think the technology is going to slow down. I don't think capitalism is going to slow down anytime soon anyway. That's really interesting uh, regarding the consumer-orientated experience because we've had a disaster here with our rollout of smart meters. Some middleman got involved and instead of them costing a couple hundred bucks, there were seven or 800, I think, per household. And it seems like it's going to be some sort of intrusion on our uh, energy usage. They're going to be spying on it for uh, determining real-time pricing for energy and, and pushing that up another level. So we're going to have these speculative middle men doing the Enron-esque type uh, buying and selling of energy. We've seen that in South Australia uh, on the super hot 46 degree type days. So uh, yeah, it's uh, this corporate control, these monopolies trying to stop change and uh, the same old stories are coming through. So it's great that you're involved in something that's looking at it from another perspective. Yeah. In this case, it's the individual opting in or out. It's less about the company forcing it on you. Literally, I mean, you say these are my limits. If the power goes above this price, then I don't really care if I'm cool or hot and that's it. You can do that. Yes. You're on 3CR's Renegade Economist this week with Max Carlson out of Silicon Valley talking about the tech future. And Max, there's a lot of talk here in Australia about big data. And our government is uh, uh, amping up to really spy on what's happening here. We've had this uh, uh, very interesting battle in America over net neutrality. It sounds like the FCC has uh, uh, fought off the uh, monopoly interests there for the moment. It's going to Congress and we'll see what happens. But uh, how do you feel about... uh, this, this big data that as someone from the commons, you, you would intrinsically understand that the community creates this data, but uh, the big boys, the Googles and Yahoos are able to make a lot of money out of that data mining. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I'm of mixed minds about it. You know, it's, it's in a way I feel like, 
you know, all of these companies and governments, they have so much data that it's pretty hard with that much information to find the needle in the haystack, to find the um, meaningful bits. Um, but I think the biggest danger for, you know, individual freedom is the asymmetry of access to that information. Um, if you look at all of the information, I mean, if you, if you just think about the history of your Google searches and what that reveals about you, it tells a lot about who, you know, an individual is and uh, you don't necessarily have access to that. And Google actually, to their credit, they're one of the better companies, you know, they allow you to access your search history and supposedly you can clear it out You know, all of these things. There's a relative amount of transparency, but still they have way better asymmetrical access to your information about you than you do as an individual. And it's sort of, <clears throat> that's the cost of using a quote unquote free service, right? I mean, it's not really free. They have to make money somehow. And one thing that a lot of people don't realize is Google is the world's largest advertising company, right? Mm. So they own, you know, not just internet advertising, billboards, television advertising. You know, it's a little bit under the radar, but that's really what they are. That's how they make their money, you know. And really, when you use a free service, the company that's providing you, and I think Google does a great job, you know, uh, Google search is amazing. It gets better and better. You know, the competition doesn't even come close. Gmail's really great. You know, very, very useful stuff. And it costs a lot of money to develop that. So how do they pay for it? Well, they monetize the users. That's the phrase, monetization. Mm. Yeah, but it, I mean, it's interesting because groups such as um, Bing, for example, the Microsoft-funded group, uh, they didn't have that search history to build their algorithms off. And it sounds like beyond the page ranking that Google originally created their algorithm that shot them into the 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 the, the front line of search engines. Now they also have their algorithm incorporating this user experience, so it tailors economic rent, you know, that delivers you to uh, certain websites that you have a history with, pushes them up the level. But these new players can't get into that marketplace. So how do we create some sort of level playing field so that, you know, whilst Google has this great monopoly power, they're doing good things. Is that the sort of competitive future? Is this the best we can do in terms of technology competition? Um, yeah. I mean, at this point, I think if you look at internet search, it's going to be really hard for anyone to ever catch up or effectively compete with them at this point. You know, so it's kind of a de facto monopoly. And that may or may not, I'm speaking from a US kind of centric perspective, that may or may not be the same all around the world. But that's just what I see. And, you know, again, it goes back to the, you know, who owns that information. I mean, Google has this enormous wealth of information. And because it's a private company, it's proprietary. You know, there's very little obligation on their part to share it with anybody. But if all of that data about everyone's search history was open, you know, um, I, you know, I mean, this is kind of a crazy idea, but imagine if all of those closed circuit cameras that are all over town, uh, anyone could go to a web page, type in a number and go look through that camera. Right. And everybody had access to the feeds rather than them just going to some central office and one person having access to those feeds. I mean, it's kind of an analogy, but you know, it could be the same with your search history data or any other data you generate, you know, it could be out in the commons, you know, with anyone, including you being able to access it. And I think that would be a radically different world rather than having, you know, because then the competition could catch up if they were smart enough, the data would be there and maybe they could make sense of it getting back to big data. You know, so I mean, it, I think for me, increasingly, the most interesting part of big data is, you know, who has access to all that big data. 
and who can, you know, who has the facilities and the technology to make sense of it or try to make sense of it? Yeah, well, I've been trying to get my head around how we can address some of the incredible inequality I witnessed in San Francisco, LA last year, and the incredible you know, these tech wages, they're immense. And I know you live in the Tenderloin, you're seeing some of these pressures yourself, but uh, perhaps there's there's a way through with a couple of different options. I'll float by you. Like we've discussed these data uh, centres, which are huge users of energy. They're already having to pay for the, the power, you know, and that's forcing them to think about greener alternatives. But in terms of the inequality, perhaps one angle is to have a system of land zoning for where those data servers are. And instead of them buying cheap land up in the mountains and being able to channel river water through to uh, cool down these server farms, there would be a special zone for that land. So the price would be higher. I don't know how high that'd have to be to reduce, you know, people on uh, $15 million, uh, you know, uh, as as some sort of software expert versus, uh, you know, the local cleaner. But it might act as a way to uh, reduce some of the incredible profits that are happening through these fields. Would that just lead to Google moving their data centers to another country where with some the similar zoning where a um, a higher land value and higher land tax would probably be uh, placed on them? Uh, no, I don't think so because part of what people expect when you're doing something like using Google, you're expecting to get your results back quickly. And a key part of getting those results back quickly is the locality of the server firm. That is, the closer it is to you physically, or at least physically in terms of the network topology, not necessarily you know what building you're in, uh, the faster the results are going to come back to you. So um, I don't think you can ever really get away with that, uh, you know, with, with with completely moving your server farm somewhere else because there are just inherent limits. I mean, if you look at you know transcontinental telecommunication, well, a lot of it's done via undersea cables and there's limited, you know, supply of data going across those and it costs a lot of money and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, I I don't really see that happening. I mean, one thing I'd really like to see though is uh, I'd like to see some of these corporations actually pay their fair share in taxes relative to individuals. I mean, it's absurd. Mm, You know, if you look at the Ireland shuffle that uh, Google and Apple have been doing in Europe to avoid paying, you know, corporate taxes there, it's interesting to see the EU cracking down, you know, and in some Mm. ways, uh, you know, uh, possibly forcing, you know, at least Google to, to pay their fair share of at least EU taxes. But don't you think they're just going to find some way to shuffle money through some sort of uh, dark net type uh, system or there's going to be a new Bitcoin type software that will be developed to hide this, this currency somehow, some way? No. No? I don't think so. You're I mean, right? I think that, you know, I, I think, um, you know, it's a global economy now and, uh, you know, it's getting harder and harder to fight, to hide money. Um, probably the most interesting, uh, part of the Snowden revelations for me was the realization that the NSA had managed to record in, for the first time an entire country's phone calls for an entire month. Mm. So if you think about that for a minute and it's a, you know, you think, well, it must be a small country, but where would you think that is? America. <laughs> no, no, no. It's the, uh, the, uh, Bahamas which is a notorious tax shelter. And if you think about that, having everyone's phone calls for an entire month means that you've basically got the dirt on everybody who's hiding their money there. Mm. And, you know, so I think 
uh, there's this sort of radical transparency going on and it's getting harder and harder to hide money, period. Mm. Um, so I don't think, you know, in, in corporations, um, they are beholden to regulation. It's just whether or not, you know, the government step up and enforce it. 3CR, radio that's independent, progressive and making a difference. We're with Max Carlson, open source software programmer, discussing some of the intricacies of the tech future, the tech world we live in. So, uh, yeah, one of our specialties here is this tax story and talking about taxing immobile assets, assets that can't move. So we've talked about these data server farms. The other one is the actual DNS numbers that are behind the domain name, the actual, all those string of numbers that actually mean google.com, facebook.com and so forth, tied in with uh, companies such as VeriSign who somehow managed to orchestrate one of the world's most powerful monopolies, the company that that allocates .com, .net and .org domain names. Uh, Do you think that putting some sort of tax on those those DNS numbers is something that could be explored in further detail or do you think being someone who understands the technology of it, would they just change those numbers in a Bahamas-type location and, you know, as soon as we caught up with them, they'd change to another country? Is this a possible angle forward? Because if you think about that domain name, google.com, and all of the incredible cyber-squatting stories that have been out there, a lot of money is made out of domain names and it's something that must pain developers such as yourself to see people making this easy money. How do we find a way out of it? Well, I mean, I guess you could tax the names themselves, right? I mean, you could tax the use of the... Because what the DNS domain name servers do is they take that name and then give you back a number, right? So um, you could tax that facility, I suppose. Um, The fact that you can change what number it gives back means that you, to a certain extent, could move numbers. And so maybe taxing the numbers would be less effective, but, um, you know, know. it's a little bit hard to say. Um, But, you know, it's interesting because the U.S. is no longer entirely in control of the... uh, uh, name server infrastructure on the yeah, internet. Yeah, that was a big story last year, wasn't it? That slipped under the radar. Tell us a bit about that. Well, I mean, I think a lot of other people in the world realize, I mean, well, here's a key piece of global, at this point, global infrastructure, and it should be, you know, shouldn't be controlled by a single nation, you know? So, you know, I think it was due to mostly EU demands, if I'm... It wasn't Eric Snowden? Uh, well, I'm sure uh, it didn't hurt. I mean, I'm not sure exactly which one you mean, to be honest. Well, Eric Snowden blowing the lid on the CIA having access to spy, I suppose that's a whole different system, isn't it, through echelon and satellite rather than through the internet? I mean, what was the process? What was the infrastructure they used to spy on the Bahamas, for example? Well, if you want to make a phone call, if you make a satellite phone call, there's a lot of latency, right? And so there's basically echoing on the phone call. That's annoying. So, And that's because it takes time to bounce the signal off a satellite and then back down again. So... A lot of these uh, kinds of conversations occur through cables, right? So if you can manage to tap that cable, then, you know, in some ways you can listen in on it. And, you know, I mean, you know, that's kind of what, what you know, what parts of the revelations I read kind of, you know, talk about, you know, using that strategy. So, for instance, rather than 
breaking directly into Yahoo or Google, then you just tap the cable between their data centers and then you've got, you know, um, then you can kind of, you know, watch what's going by, you know, passively. And that seems to be the strategy that's used um, by these various uh, agencies. Mm, it's it's a, a huge issue, and I just wonder how much security is placed around these cables uh, coming out of uh, the Californian coastline. Have they got uh, some serious protection around that? Well, I don't know. That, I don't know that you really can because they're running along the ocean floor. So I don't know how you really hit, when it hits landfall. Yeah, I mean, but somebody can still tap it in the ocean. I mean, people, you know, that's been done before. I mean, it's it's pretty hard to do. I mean, I think the only way to really protect yourself or for, for somebody to protect oneself is to use encryption. And then, you know, it kind of doesn't matter what you're listening in on. It's apparently noise, you know. So what about the future with uh, the development of robots? How's that playing out in Silicon Valley? And have you heard anyone talking about the economics of this and what's going to happen to the minimum wage? Uh, How are people going to survive? It's it's nearing on the horizon where this is really going to start impacting our lives. Yeah, I mean, it's tricky, right? Because um, uh, robots may be able to replace certain kinds of manual labor, right? Um, like I have a robot vacuum cleaner that sweeps my floor and I don't have to vacuum anymore. And it does a much better job than I do because it vacuums every single day when I'm out of the house. And, you know, so, uh, do you have to turn it on or it just knows you're gone? Just does the, you know, it's on a schedule and it just does its thing. Uh, Yeah. And it's great. You know, I, I would never go back to having a, you know, well, I still have a regular vacuum cleaner, but I don't use it that much. And I think, you know, to my mind, that's kind of a good thing because I don't like vacuuming. So I guess my hope is, I mean, it's kind of terrifying because, you know, it's putting someone out of work. Like if I were to hire, I I don't hire cleaners or anything. Like I enjoy cleaning myself, but if I did, you know, I'd be putting them out of work by replacing them with a robot to a certain extent. And I think that's a little bit scary, but I would hope that maybe uh, the quality of work will just improve and the kinds of jobs people do will improve rather than, you know, um, the work actually going away. Yeah, there's always been that evolution of uh, moving up the food chain as countries globalize and then their um, manufacturing sectors move up another another tier. And uh, yeah, it will be interesting how this affects uh, workers in China and India and Bangladesh and places like that. But it's, um, it's something that uh, people are starting to talk about from what I read uh, in Silicon Valley, uh, this, the, the need for a universal basic income because robots are basically going to take away these menial jobs and perhaps we won't have bus drivers, it'll be automated, things like that. So uh, uh, have you heard much discussion of that sort of stuff? Mm, not really. I mean, there, there are, you know, I think um, at least in Silicon Valley, it seems like people are kind of more focused on solving the technical problems than the policy problems or the associated problems. And it's just... There's less concern about what's the impact going to be in just sort of this. Uh, I mean, I guess I, I have it too. You know, there's this sort of bright-eyed idealism that, well, things will be different, but we hope it'll be better. But it feels like an unstoppable tide. I mean, I mean, when you talk about China and India, I mean, I think certainly China, there's going to be a huge impact on the working class there. You know, and there's this tremendous middle-class growth there due to the manufacturing. And so what happens to that when you replace them with robots, right, if you start replacing 
people with robots in these, you know, gigantic manufacturing centers, uh, you know, how does that affect things? All right. Thanks, listeners. And that was Max Carlson, Silicon Valley coder and entrepreneur. And you would have heard at least three or four suggestions there. One was the zoning and taxation of data centers. Certainly they can't hide them. They're going to have to uh, pay a land tax on that. Should be quite valuable, that one. There was also talk of taxation of domain names, apple.com, facebook.com, the market valuations based on how many users, how much time, how much expenditure, huge amount of value there. Uh, talk about uh, taxation and the DNS numbers behind that name. Max was a little bit circumspect about that. He did also uh, talk about taxation of data flows through the uh, cabling. So that's another one. Uh, so, yeah, there's a few things to think about. Uh, there's also electromagnetic spectrum to look at. So much money being made out of that one. Yeah, but the taxation of links, who knows uh, what Google's going to do? Will they suppress a whole pile of news links if that's the case? I think there's going to be some perverse consequences to come out of this. But at least the government is moving quickly, probably because Murdoch just cracked the whip. All right, don't forget to support 3CR and our annual subscriber drive. We need subscriptions to keep independent media alive and well, particularly when the rent seekers own the politicians and own most of the media. So support 3CR now, 3cr.org.au. Make sure you mention The Renegade Economist. Thank you.